afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. My guest, J. Warner Wallace, is a Dateline featured cold case homicide detective, a detective who's uh, been a popular national speaker, best-selling author. One day, he was uh, listening to a pastor talk about Jesus and wondered why anyone would think Jesus was a, quote, person of interest. He was skeptical of the Bible. But he'd investigated several no-body homicide cases in which there was no crime scene, no physical evidence, no victim's body. Could the reality of Jesus be investigated in the same way? Well, the result is an outstanding book called Person of Interest, Why Jesus Still Matters in a World That Rejects the Bible. Jim, good to have you with me. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me. Looking forward to it. Let's let's talk about that moment uh, when you were sitting in church listening to this pastor. Uh, where were you at spiritually at that time? Oh boy! Uh, well, I was I was at about zero. I mean, it wasn't <laughs> like I was I was uh, I just didn't know anything that I thought was worth knowing. I, honestly, I was raised in Southern California here in Los Angeles County, and I just didn't have any contact with uh, Christians that I thought, in my own way of perceiving things, as positive. Right? I mean, a lot right. of times we. I would meet people. I was working as an undercover at the time, and I had been uh, working in law enforcement for probably close to 10 years. And, and I would even meet some uh, officers who said they were Christians. And But if I asked them, well, why do you think this is true? They weren't really able to tell me, why, aside from their own personal experiences. Right. Everyone's got a personal experience. Mm-hmm. And, and then the other group I would meet would be like the people who were taken to jail, many of whom would tell me that they were Christians. Right. right. And I thought to myself, this is not some... I mean, to me... This was utterly absurd and not even worth something, uh, I sh- not worth my investigation. As a matter of fact, I had a, a co-worker, my first training officer, he wrote to me last week on an email, and he says, you know, I can't believe that you're a Christian now, given that when I knew you, um, if I even said anything about Jesus, you would just mock me. <laughs> and I thought, well, I don't remember I was being quite that bad, but I guess I was. <laughs> but that's really the state I was in when I walked into that church for the first time. Yeah. Uh, why person of interest? Why that phrase? Well, that's a title that really has been used in the last couple of decades, and really, I think, most commonly once we started working some terrorist, uh, the National Investigation of Terrorist Plots. But, but really what it re- usually refers to is somebody who is either potentially a suspect, but maybe you don't have enough evidence yet to file a case, so you're still working on that person. He's your best candidate, but he's not yet at the level of a fileable a suspect, mm-hmm. or it's somebody maybe who you know you don't have any clue yet who, who to look for, but you know there's this significant witness who could maybe point you in the right direction. Well, sometimes that first domino in the series of dominoes would be called that person of interest, like where we're going to start. But it's, I'm using it in this context because that first pastor he pitched Jesus in a way that I could catch him. He he said that Jesus was the smartest man who ever lived, and as a kind of, kind of a prideful. I thought that that's not true. Is it that true? How would I know if that's true? So I bought a Bible just to see what was so smart about Jesus. Yeah. Did, um, did, the book, though, really focuses on what we would know about Jesus if the New Testament had, was destroyed. Yeah, and that was really... I, I take that approach. Yeah. Only because... If you had known me in those days, and I was 35 when I walked into that church, um, and I had a ton of experience in interviewing witnesses, investigating cases, claims about the past, and I just thought, you know, I'm not really um, convinced this guy is of any importance. 
And I don't think I could trust what's written in the New Testament. I, I was somebody who said, I don't want to hear your scripture. I don't want to read your scripture. Everyone's got scripture. I'm not interested in your fairy tales. Yeah. Yeah. So, so if you were somebody like me who said, you know, I'm not really interested in reading through Christian scripture, if I don't trust it. Well, it turns out that you could learn something about Jesus of Nazareth. I think you could actually make a case for his historicity and his deity just from the stuff that's outside the New Testament. In other yeah. words, I've worked a bunch of these nobody murders where you have a, a guy who kills his wife and claims that she ran off. And, and everyone believes him, and so they don't even take photographs of the scene. And four or five years go by, she's never returned, and now they're working as a homicide, and there's no evidence from her crime scene, not a single photograph ever taken, and she, her body's never even been recovered. Well, how do you make that case in front of a jury? Well, you tell them, hey, on the day that she vanished, if this is a murder, uh, it's like a bomb went off. And, and there's a fuse that precedes every bomb, and when that bomb gets detonated, there is shrapnel all over the blast radius. So I'll tell you what. I will tell you what happened on the day of the detonation by simply tracing the fuse and examining the fallout. That fuse and fallout approach is how we solve no-body cases, where we have not a single piece of evidence from the crime scene. So I thought, well, look, if, if I don't trust what's in the crime scene, the New Testament, let's just scrap that for a second. Let's take a look at the fuse and fallout of history and see if it would make the same case. You've got- I think it does. You've got three aspects to the fuse, right? You've got the, mm-hmm. the cultural, the historical, the prophetic. Uh, yeah. Let let's go. Let's stay with that. And and I love I love by the way I love I love the metaphor you're using. This is the first time I've ever heard it, so I love it. So <laughs> keep going. Yeah. Well, a lot of it is just trying to figure out like what in history would we count as a fuse, and I think you'll see that there are several kinds of fuses that are burning and are twisted together. And one of those is just the cultural fuse. You know, it turns out that if you want the story of Jesus to have legs, to be able to move around the world, you have to kind of wait until a period of time in which the mechanism and the infrastructure is in place from an empire that actually now has controlled the entire area of the Mediterranean, the known, unquote, world, so to speak, and has put the infrastructure in place so you now have roads, a 200-year period of peace called the Pax Romana, postal services, a common language, a common uh, uh, writing uh, uh, alphabet. All of these things happen to be in place by the first century, and I kind of demonstrate that by tracing all of the empires that preceded the Roman Empire, and then what is happening within the Roman Empire that gives you this unique opportunity, this window of opportunity in the first century. At the same time, of course, that there is a prophetic um, a fuse that's burning based on all of the Old Testament prophecies pointing to the Messiah. And even Daniel gives you a kind of a window opportunity from the reconstruction of, of Jerusalem to the fall of the temple, the destruction of the temple. His prophecy in chapter 9 of Daniel kind of gives you a small window of opportunity as well. And there's also, of course, a spiritual uh, fuse burning because the ancients believed in all kinds of mythologies which do bear some resemblance they all have common expectations of what God would probably be like, just like Paul noticed on Mars Hill. And so these folks were all worshiping their gods, and these periods of worship have limits. Like, not, not all these gods are worshipped into the common era, but it turns out there's an overlap in which the most number of ancients are worshiping gods with common expectations that, by the way, are met the most robustly by Jesus of Nazareth. And when you put those three fuses together... You'll see there's a small window of opportunity of about 100 years, from about 29 B.C. to about 70 A.D. And who, of course, stands right in the middle of that 100-year period is Jesus of Nazareth. And so if you didn't know why we call this the Common Era, or we call it A.D., 
Well, you could determine that just from that fuse because there's one catalyst that stands in the middle of the uh, little red zone of opportunity based on the fuse, and that is Jesus. Uh, You're well aware that there are those today who will say, well, Jesus, uh, you know, in the history of religions, uh, was not so distinct. I mean, we have other uh, saviors out there. Uh, Perhaps the uh, the apostles simply uh, put together a profile of a savior uh, who's really no more than part of the common mythology of the ancient Mediterranean world. Yeah, so there there definitely are common expectations. So I went that back and read, and I've listed in the book all of these mythologies and what they have in common with each other. And there are 15, as I count them. You could probably add as many as 18 or as few as 10. But I put 15 of the common expectations. They are very broad. So, Al, they don't even end up being similar. So, for example, uh, most of these mythologies will posit that the god will enter into his creation in an unnatural or supernatural way. Well, that's what Jesus does, but some of these gods will jump out of the side of a mountain, will be born out of the thigh of another god. I mean, the stories are very, very different, but they are supernatural. So they have something in common. But only in the most broadest, and the, these are the common expectations. It's reasonable for the ancients to assume that a supernatural being would enter into his creation in a supernatural way. That's a common expectation. That's what's so beautiful about it. It's as C.S. Lewis says, these are the myths, the, the, the stories about God from the minds of men, whereas Jesus is the myth from the mind of God. It's the true myth based on what we call true things, you know, mm-hmm. the reality. And so if you look at Jesus... If God was going to, uh, uh, don't you think that humans, designed in the image of God, would have common thoughts about the God who designed them? Sure. We do. Even today we do. Even the people who are unchurched today have common expectations of God in 2021. Right. So sure enough, what does God do? He finds that one opportunity when all of these mythologies are being worshipped simultaneously to enter into his creation and actually personify all of... By the way, no mythology bears more than about ten of these common attributes. <laughs> Some have all as little as six. Only Jesus of Nazareth has all fifteen. He is the most robust manifestation of our expectations. And by the way, if you think the ancient gospel authors trying to convince a Jewish audience that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah would then borrow from every possible non-Jewish pagan myth to make their case, <laughs> it doesn't seem like a the right way to go. There's probably a better way to go than that, because you're just offending the group you're trying to convince. And that's why I don't think that's a reasonable explanation to begin with. Uh, you take a look at the messianic expectation of uh, the Jewish world of the first century. Mm-hmm. Um, this is not the New Testament, so it's, 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 it's evidence for you, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, talk to me about messianic prophecy and fulfillment. What is it that was so compelling in those uh, passages uh, from the prophets that made it clear that uh, Jesus was indicated? Yeah, and I think I, I'm very, very picky about these because I don't think that, that some people are. I mean, there's two kinds of evidence in crime scenes. There's clear evidence, like a fingerprint. If you've got a good database, it'll mm-hmm. tell you who your suspect is before you ever knock on his door. And there's things like a button that may or may not belong to your suspect. You won't know until you meet him and you've already identified him, and you can start to go through all of his clothing to see if he's missing a button. Mm-hmm. Now, there's two ways of looking at that. So one will give you the evidence the, uh, from the onset will identify your suspect. The other only identifies your suspect in hindsight. 
So cloaked evidence is different than clear evidence. Well, the prophecies are very similar to this. There are some clear prophecies. So as I was listening as a new believer, there was a new investigator of, of Christianity, and I'm listening to people talk about how prophecy points to Jesus. Well, some of the prophecies they were pointing at were cloaked. I mean, I, I wasn't right. sure these, these <laughs> authors were even talking about the Messiah at all. I, I had the it, same it, experience, about, yeah. Yeah, I thought it was just David talking about David. But here's what's interesting. The New Testament authors will still use those because they're cloaked. In other words, it's like, here's the button. Guess what? It happens to match the shirt of Jesus. And that's how they use it. Yeah. Hold it there if you would, Jim. We'll come back. Got to take a quick break. We'll come back. My guest, uh, Detective J. Warner Wallace. Person of Interest, the name of the book, Why Jesus Still Matters in a World That Rejects the Bible. This is a, a great piece of work uh, in the field of apologetics. Uh, again, it takes a very different, very engaging approach. We'll be back in just a moment. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me is Jay Warner Wallace, a Dateline-featured cold case homicide detective who's done great work in the the field of apologetics uh, in defense of the faith. It's called Person of Interest, Why Jesus Still Matters in a World that Rejects the Bible. And he's got a lot of experience in no-body homicides, and he's using, uh, again, some of the methodology uh, that he used professionally to look at the uh, person of Christ, but without reference to the New Testament. And before the break, we were talking about uh, prophecy, Old Testament prophecy, and uh, he was comparing uh, some of those prophecies to uh, clear evidence uh, like uh, the fingerprint or DNA, and some of those prophecies are more like cloaked evidence, you know, things like a button you would find at the scene of the crime. You're not sure who it belongs to, but as you get closer to your suspect, you begin. it makes sense, and it confirms uh, other uh, uh, evaluations that you have. Give me an example, if you would, Jim, of uh, clear prophecy as opposed to cloaked prophecy. So what we tried to do in the book is, is I, I went back and I read through all of those, you know, sometimes people say, oh, there's 300 prophecies that point to, to Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah. Well, if you break those down and kind of put them in groups, uh, in terms of either clear or cloaked, mm-hmm. and I, I can tell you that we've got, I've got a friend who was part of a major ministry here in Southern California who was kind of deconstructing his faith, and one of the things he was having trouble with was that he said the New Testament authors are constantly using prophecies that even Jews don't consider to be messianic, right? right? I mean, so he's saying, why would... These don't make it... They're they're reading them in such a way and abusing the text in such a way as to make Jesus the Messiah. And so this is not unusual to have somebody say this. So... So you'll see that in the book, I try to, it's very visual, right? I'm a visual person in front of a jury. This is important to me. There's over 400 illustrations in the book. And you'll see that in this section on prophecies, for example, if I'm going to get to those psalmists who are talking about the coming Messiah, like David and Solomon and Asaph, who are writing between about 1060 and about 1015 uh, B.C., you will see that the vast majority of what we would call messianic prophecies in that grouping are really cloaked. They're not clear. That, that clearly, and I've got a diagram that shows this, about one-sixth of the, of the prophecies we would typically list in that period of time 
are really clear. They would say that God is he called God's son. He is known for righteousness. Righteousness. He's executed without his bones being broken. He doesn't see decay, and he makes known the path of life. At the same time, though, you'll see also some cloaked prophecies, where it appears that he is quiet before his accusers and stripped of his clothing, and his executors will cast lots. Now, a lot of times you've heard those prophecies being used as clear prophecies of the coming Messiah that matched Jesus. But if you look at the context in which, you know, his, he uh, is stripped of his clothing and his executors will cast lots, you will see it's not as clear as you might think. Right. It's actually more cloaked. But mm-hmm. it's still fair for the New Testament author to use it when making the case That's the right. same way it would be fair to use a button. You wouldn't just toss the button and say, don't bother photographing that button. It'll have no future value to us. Well, mm-hmm. no, actually, the button's going to be part of the case as well as the fingerprint. So what we do here, in the book, what I tried to do was to look through, just for the sake of argument. Now, a lot of times people get um, sensitive about these issues, but I'm just doing it for the sake of argument. If we just tossed out all of the cloaked, and I'm trying to read in the text, I'm also looking at Jewish sources to see what do the Jewish people believe is messianic. If you just toss out the stuff that is cloaked for the sake of the argument, you still have enough, more than enough information from the clear prophecies to, to get a picture of Jesus that you ought to be able to recognize. So I'm taking the worst-case scenario, and you still have Jesus, okay? And so I just want to show that. And what I did in the book, which I don't think I've seen anywhere else anyway, is instead of grouping the prophecies by, like, their type, like, this is about his birth, this is about the death of the Messiah, this is about the ministry of the Messiah. No, I, I put them in the actual chronological order in which they are given. And here's why I did that, Al. I, I've always kind of wondered, like, why does Jesus come when he comes? And one of the reasons why Jesus comes when he comes is because, like in any investigation of a suspect, you have to answer the what, when, why, how, where questions before you can answer the who question. There are six important questions to answer. But it turns out when you list out the prophecies in their time, you will see that really until you get to Malachi, you don't have enough information in the what, when, where, how, why uh, questions to answer the who question. Hmm. But as you go through the, the epic periods of time and prophecy, you'll see that you get clearer and clearer answers in those first five categories. So the who then... So, for example, if Jesus shows up a thousand years earlier, and he says, hey, folks, and then the writers of the gospel say, hey, Jesus matches the prophecies, well, there aren't enough prophecies in place yet to be able to make a convincing case from prophecy. Right. So you have to wait for all of these prophecies to happen in history, and then when this... Uh, Messiah shows up, you can now use prophecy to make a case. And th- this is a part of what St. Paul means when he talks about Jesus uh, you know, coming in the fullness of time, yeah. which is an yeah. important part, a chapter in your book as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I love that expression. I've always wondered, what does that even mean, the fullness of time? Right. Well, if you look at the fullness of the way that empires were laid out, and that window of opportunity, that Pax Romana. By the way, remember, it was during the Pax Romana in the Roman Empire, when we had 200 years of peace, that, that the, 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 the government was able to shift its uh, spending from war to infrastructure, so that by the time it's done... The roads that Paul is going to walk on, which were not available to him 200 years earlier, are now available to walk to do these missions trips. The infrastructure was in place. So the message of Jesus, should it occur in that small red zone, now has legs. Yeah. One of the things you do in the book is you also take a look at, I don't know, evidences from uh, uh, culture. Uh, so you're taking a look at uh, uh, how Jesus dominates the bookshelves, for instance, and you compare right. his influence 
which again, uh, this is this is part of gauging his his impact. Uh, tell me how tell me how you arrange your thinking in this area of his impact on culture. So I was looking at this fallout, right? Like how the, the, once he shows that explosive appearance of Jesus in history, something's going to follow. Like any bomb that explodes, if he's really who he said he was, right. I would expect a huge ripple in the water. And you'll often see people say, well, if Jesus hasn't, you know, if he was really who he said he was, wouldn't there be all kinds of people writing about him in the first century? Well, it turns out, if you know anything about the first century writings, there are a lot of people who are writing about Jesus in the first century now, especially by the time it gets to the third century, and it becomes the, or the fourth century, and it becomes the religion of the empire. You've got a broad collection, and I listed, of all the Christian and non-Christian authors who are saying something about Jesus. The number of voices that can be found on ancient manuscripts before the religion of the empire emerges in 325 is astounding, okay? So, so there's, it's, hard, it's hard to kind of miss that. Now, what I was looking for in the fallout are two things. Number one, what aspects of culture has this person of interest really had an impact on? How big is that impact? And two, from that impact, am I able to see the fingerprints of the person who caused the impact well enough to reconstruct his story? Mm-hmm. So what I'm looking for are those aspects of culture that, number one, huge impact, number two, left his fingerprints. And what you'll see in some unusual and unexpected places is that Jesus' fingerprints are on everything. Yeah, so you're right. I mean, no one has been written about. No one dominates writing. If you were to search either the Library of Congress or if you were to search Google Books and just look for the name Jesus in titles, (laughs) you will find that nobody dominates, that no person of history, no historical figure, has ever been written about more than Jesus of Nazareth. (laughs) Globally. That's an interesting uh, point. Yeah. Now, not only that, from those, of course, you can reconstruct the story. You'd have to destroy more than every New Testament. You have to destroy all those writers we talked about in the first four centuries. You have to destroy uh, much of the classic literature that has come down to us. Uh, you have to destroy the dominance that he's had in all kinds of literature, fiction and nonfiction. And you'd even have to destroy those pieces of fiction in which the overarching story of Jesus as he's described in literature as a Christ figure, is found in the uh, uh, non, in the rather fictional creations of authors who, who craft their, their characters around the rough outline of Jesus. You'll see this, this is actually a genre of literature called Christ figuring. Right. And you'll see this in many pieces. You, if, if you read all those books, you'd say, wow, it seems like all these characters have some similarities. And if you sketch those similarities out, guess what you're describing? You're describing Jesus of Nazareth. Yeah. So in the end, you have to destroy a lot more. That kind of impact is, there's nobody else in the history of persons who's had that kind of impact on literature. So the question becomes, well, how, why is this guy? This guy's a nobody. This guy's a Jewish sage from the first century. You don't believe Jesus is God. <laughs> right. He's just another guy. Right. Another guy in the first century. And if you look at all the people who were somebody in the first century, Jesus really doesn't make that list unless, of course, he's God. Yeah. But it turns out, of all those people in the first century who might account for this shift in our calendar, right? Why we call this the first century. Well, none of them have had any kind of historical impact like this little sage from this tiny corner of an insignificant town in the Roman Empire. Yeah, yeah. No, so how do we explain yeah, that? That's great. I mean, do you even go to the, the area of contemporary popular music, 
where it's just about everybody you can think of who's recorded in popular music is in the list of having had said something about uh, Jesus, whether it's Jackie Wilson yeah. or Van Morrison, oh, no. Bob That's Dylan, right. uh, who had a conversion experience back in the late 70s. Um, yeah, there's no doubt that nobody's been sung about more than Jesus of Nazareth, and that, and especially <laughs> in pop music. And yeah. We say, well, that's Western music. Well, to be honest, with, with the, like, like anything else, when you have technology like we have, all ideas are exported everywhere now. Right. There are no national boundaries when it comes to ideas, music, literature. These things now travel. And so this kind of influence, you know, is, is you could say the same thing. Look, he, he, it all started in, in, in Nazareth, okay? But from that one point, the entire world has been touched. Now, it may have taken a little longer, it may have taken some certain forms of technology, but music, Western music, is influencing music everywhere. If you don't think it is, I mean, this, every, you know, the Korean pop music would give you a good example of, of how far the genre travels. <laughs> right, and so right. it, this is the kind of stuff that, that uh, is amazing to me, that this person is the one who, ought, I think I made a list of all the top 100 artists. It ends up being about 150 artists, because you have three different lists, and there's some overlapping and some differences. But of all of those artists, I think only two had not sung a song about Jesus. It's amazing. And some of these are derogatory. So he's yeah, right, right. That's true. Or he's going to inspire you, but you're going to sing about him one way or the other. Yeah, so. you can't, you can't get away from him. Uh, That's right. Yeah, uh, you also do something in the, this which I, I liked. Um, you really took what, it, in the popular mind, anyways, is an area where you don't expect to see the influence of Jesus, and that's the world of science. And uh, you've actually taken a look at the impact uh, he's had on the world of science, and on those who have become fathers uh, of various disciplines, uh, you know, chemical uh, energetics or uh, galactic astronomy. Uh, no, it's true. I mean, I, we, were, we were shocked, actually. So we, this all started as, I just want to show that, 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 yes, Christ followers have been in the sciences. Yeah. Well, when you start doing the research on this, you realize, oh, I had no idea, yeah. because I wasn't taught this in school. Right. So if you just say, hey, top um, scientists or natural philosophers in the first century, top, uh, you know, dudes for every century, you will get a list, and these lists will have all kinds of people from all kinds of different cultures. But then you can kind of isolate and see, like, who's playing in these areas, Right. And so we started to collect these names, and it's not even easy to do because there's not a lot written in terms of, like, uh, textbooks that are out there. And if you're using online services, a lot of these online, even reliable online sources, have kind of scrubbed the Christian identity off the person you're looking at. Yeah, yeah. So it's really hard to identify the Christians, right? But we did. And then as we got about 950 of these, we realized, we, I said, you know what, I'm starting to see this expression, father of this, we need to go back to all 100, 950 and look for that, and you will see that more Christians are fathers of scientific disciplines than any other group. Yep. Yeah, no, I'm with you. Jim, thanks. Uh, great talking with you, and a marvelous book. And I, I'm, I'm hoping, and I suspect it's going to get great distribution and readership. Uh, I hope we can talk again in the future. Thanks, Al. I so much appreciate you having me on. Again, Jay Warner Wallace, Person of Interest, Why Jesus Still Matters in a World That Rejects the Bible.